Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that looks at the fantasies and fallacies of anything to do with motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories with David Campbell, including Australia's first autonomous vehicle project, Scoop's National ITS Awards. After the premiere of a movie, Machine, about artificial intelligence, including autonomous vehicles, I have a chat with Miklas Kish from Audi about the company's activities in this field. We hear a story about what it's like to be a young mechanic that makes a mistake at a major motorcycle racing event. And we have some quirky news with Brian Smith, where he and I discuss the link between classic cars, democracy and IS. And of course, we have some motoring minutes as well. Now, you can find more stories and information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or there's our Facebook site, Overdrive City. So let's start with the news. Australia's first regional automated vehicle initiative that incorporates a UK-based public transport technology company's solar-powered e-paper displays was recently announced as the winner of an ITS Australia Award. The Coffs Harbour Automated Vehicle Trial has won the ITS Australia 2019 National Award in the Automated Vehicle category. Known as BusBot, the project has been using papercast solar-powered e-paper displays to provide accurate travel information to service users at their bus stops. The Automated Passenger Vehicle Trial is a New South Wales government initiative led in partnership between Transport for New South Wales, local bus operator Busways, the Coffs Harbour City Council and French self-driving vehicle manufacturer EasyMile. BusSpot is the first Australian study of driverless buses in regional communities. Hyundai has set a new distance record for production hydrogen-powered vehicles with the Nexo. Balloonist Bertrand Picard drove 778 kilometres across France in the vehicle, breaking the world record for the longest distance driven in a hydrogen-powered vehicle on a single tank. A number of prominent passengers joined him for parts of the journey, including the CEO of Air Liquide, the Grand Duke of Luxembourg, and several prominent politicians. The purpose of the journey was to promote hydrogen technology as a high-performance solution for future mobility. The Hyundai Nexo completed 778 kilometres across northern France on a single refuel and still had nearly 50 kilometres of range left at the end of the journey. Driven Media's David Brown has attended a film premiere about the serious subject of artificial intelligence, including the role of autonomous vehicles. Audi has been part of the recently released documentary entitled Machine. The producers talk to Audi as a good example of how technology will not just make the current things we do easier, but it could change our behaviour and the very shape of our cities. Most people see autonomous vehicles as a case of machine learning. You develop a system to recognise and respond to known on-road situations. But while cars that use artificial intelligence 
might have the usual inputs, for example, information about road widths and signposts, etc., how should emotions be factored in? And will cars develop a mind of their own? Time will tell. The Mayor of Paris has developed new laws and taxes that would control the number of deliveries made by online shopping giant Amazon, which have been judged a source of congestion and pollution. In an open letter published by the newspaper Le Monde, Mayor Anne Hidalgo proposed a tax on the US commerce giant and possible limits on deliveries in certain districts of the city. Deliveries would only be possible at certain times and would need to be reserved in advance to avoid there being more delivery trucks than available spaces. The Black Friday shopping event leads to 2.5 million deliveries in Paris per day, which is 10 times the amount of daily parcels seen in the rest of the year and causes increased traffic and pollution, the letter said. The letter also said that the main polluter should pay the costs rather than a national tax on each delivery which has been thrown out several times by the government. The law should allow local authorities to impose an eco-charge on home deliveries, it said. Honda's new 10th generation Accord will hit Australian showrooms later this month, more than two years after launching in the United States. The new Accord will provide Honda with a more competitive model than the current model, as it struggles against dominating mid-size vehicles such as the Toyota Camry and Mazda 6. The new Thai-built sedan will serve as the Japanese brand's flagship sedan with just one trim level and two engine options, a 1.5-litre turbo or a 2-litre hybrid. Pricing starts at just under $48,000 plus on-road costs for the petrol version and around $50,000 for the hybrid. Standard equipment includes remote engine start and stop, wireless device charging and a heads-up display, as well as Honda Sensing safety technologies. Falcon's parent company, Sumitomo Rubber Industries, has developed a new technology that they claim utilises artificial intelligence to predict the properties of rubber. The AI detects structural changes caused by load and wear and its effect on performance throughout a tyre's life cycle. This breakthrough also has applications for improving tyre safety. The Tyre Leap AI analysis was developed in collaboration with the Hokkaido University in Japan. And that has been the news. In the second half of the 1990s, some small to medium four-wheel drives came onto the market and we were on our way to SUVs, or sports utility vehicles. One of the earliest was the Honda CRV. The latest CRV comes in five model variants and Rob Fraser takes a look at the top offering. The latest all-new CRV, launched in 2018, is bigger and better than the previous model. It's surprising just how much room there is inside as well as clever layout and huge storage areas, especially around the centre console. Powered by a VTEC four-cylinder engine, the CRV has enough power and torque for normal daily driving, and for the most part, the CVT drives the front wheels unless the all-wheel drive is needed to prevent wheel slip. The fifth-generation CRV gives a quiet, enjoyable ride, and the handling has also been improved significantly. Seating is very comfortable for five, and with wide opening doors, access is easy. Even my lumping frame can fit in the back seats. However, the third row of seats are definitely in the occasional category. Boot space is surprisingly large. The CRV hits a sweet spot between conservative and exciting, and at a touch over $44,000, plus the usual costs, the Honda CRV is pretty good value and definitely worth a drive. 
You're listening to Overdrive. Last week on Overdrive, we had a chat with Mick Stupka, who races a 1954 Citroen Traction event. We met at the Phillip Island Circuit, where I was watching the Island Magic Meeting. While I was there, I also met John Mann. John has an extensive experience in motoring and car racing, including six times at Mount Panorama. But it wasn't all plain sailing. John, you've been racing for a long time. What did you start out in? I started, I built my first open wheeler when I was about going on 18 and um, designed it and built it. Looked like an old Cooper way back then. Mm. And um, then I went to F- J Holden, FX Holdens, which we raced successfully. We had probably had the fastest FX Holden in Australia. Mm. And we still hold the record at Calder Motor Raceway in my FX. <laughs> then we sort of went from there to a, what they call the six cylinder series and we raced a Falcon and that was very successful. Then Ford Motor Company gave me a new Cortina and I raced that for a number of years. Well, it's a lovely area here, isn't it? How do you find the circuit? It, it's a flowing circuit. Well, I came down here to this circuit when I was 16 years of age. I was working on the MV Augusta motorbike and also the 7R motorbike. And Fred was out on the 7R racing. I had the little MV Augusta that I was warming it up, changed the spark plug over, and he was out winning the 125 championships and the spark plug lead, lead fell off. He chased me through the pits with a shifting wrench, threw it at me about 10 times. I finally got out on the highway, hitchhiked back to Melbourne, stayed at the Salvation People's Palace, and uh, I finally got, like six months later, I got my mother's brownie box camera back, which I presented to the Lindsay Fox Museum over there with all the motorbike photos from that meeting when I was 16. And Jackie Finlay was here with us from Marupin near Shepparton, where I lived at Shepparton in those days. Jackie Finlay was here and he went overseas and won the World Championship. We just put a statue of Jackie Finley up in Marupna where he used to live. Yeah. It's a very passionate, if not tough, sort of environment, isn't it? Oh, yes. Well, all those years I've been here, the motorbike guys were outrageous when they were here. I remember we went to the Isle of Wight Hotel here one year and they staged a fight in the bar. And while the fight was going, they pinched the lounge suite out of the, out of the hotel and brought it back here and sat around the fire on it. Then when the fire burned down, they set it alight. So that was a crazy motorbike riders, you know. But I was witnessed all that when I was only about going on 16. What's your next birthday? My birthday will be in August, yeah. And you will be? 80. 80. You don't look 80. Yeah, well, I'll give you 100 for that. <laughs> but we used to come to Phillip Island when I used to race to Cortina as a Repco Formula 5000 in it. We used to land a plane just out the back of here and fly up. We'd go up to the tower up there. That was a, that was a runway. We could go a short come over that Honda corner and land a plane here. Yeah, it was amazing. They were great times. Oh, they were fantastic times. Now, all the good circuits, we have most of most, raced the most of circuits. And, um, it's uh, been, motor racing has been part of my blood. I was in the motor business. I had a Jaguar Rover dealership and Land Rover dealership and prestige cars, of course. And um, the fabulous car I had was a 1927 Rolls Royce. If you go to Monaco, you'll see my Rolls Royce in uh, Prince Rainier Stable at uh, Monaco. It, uh, I sold the car to Piaget and uh, he gave it to uh, Prince Rainer as a gift. So I was sitting in the museum and when the door, when the glass doors goes up, it's the first car you see. And I restored that old car. I interviewed the guy with the Citroen traction event and it was lovely to see an engine that you could actually work on. Yes. I used to break down the side of the road and 
I remember I had a Morris Major. We broke down the side of the road, we did a piston. So I went in the boot, got a spare piston out, took the sump off, put, took the head off, put a piston in and drove home again. <laughs> the bloke in the service station couldn't believe it. <laughs> and the youth of the day just doesn't understand that. <laughs> they would not know what that is, half of them. <laughs> John, that's lovely to talk to you. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. That was John Mann, a long-time, hard-working and passionate participant in motor racing. The full interview with him and separately the interview with Mick and his Citroen from last week are on our Driven Media website. That's drivenmedia.com.au. This is Overdrive across Australia. Like a lot of areas in the automotive segment, Chinese cars have started to make some serious inroads. The ute segment is no exception, and manufacturers like LDV and Great Wall are available now in Australia. David Brown has spent a week in a Great Wall ute. The Great Wall large dual-cab ute has a starting price of only $26,000 plus on roads. That's a few thousand dollars below the small mid-spec Corolla. It looks quite contemporary, there's some bright colours, goes okay, but lacks features. Only in manual, only two-wheel drive, no reversing camera, not the roomiest cabin and few of the latest safety features. It's easy to say then, spend an extra ten dollars to $20,000 on a Navara or Colorado, or go the whole hog and spend nearly three times the price on the top-line Ford Ranger. But they are vehicles with a different approach. The Great Wall is a value-for-money family ute. Nothing less, nothing more. This is Overdrive across Australia. At the premiere of the documentary film Machine, a movie that explores artificial intelligence in general, but includes references to autonomous driving, Audi spoke about where they are at in terms of using this technology. The film producers incorporated comments from Miklas Kish, Audi's head of pre-development of automated driving, because their work is a good example of how technology will not just make the things we currently do easier, but it could change our behaviour and the very shape of our cities. I spoke with Miklas at the event. I saw your presentation from 2016. I think that was a time of buoyancy about it. Do you think we've evolved? Do you think our reality of what autonomous vehicle has been has developed, particularly in terms of time to develop it? Well, uh, yes, I think uh, the companies uh, have moved into a more realistic view of those systems. It uh, wasn't uh, really secret before, but there has been truly a hype. And uh, there was a hype in presentations, in demonstrations. And what many of us have ignored is that it's much harder work to put that on the street, put it into worldwide operation than putting it on a test track. You talked about the step from assistance to pilot. And that step is uh, very significant, isn't it? Particularly if you want to be level five or anywhere, anytime. Is, that's a huge step, isn't it? The step between assistant and piloted driving is uh, definitely the biggest one you can ever do because that means the shift of responsibility from the driver over to the car. Hmm. And that's uh, the most relevant uh, step we can ever take. Anything else is just a, a broader 
set up for the same function, but for the drivers, the biggest step is to be able to sit back and relax. You have a background in linguistics, I believe. Yeah. So is that opening up different ways to communicate with the car rather than just replacing the hand turning the steering wheel? Is there a whole new dimension there? Well, communication is an interesting aspect. Communication from driver with car will definitely be very different. As we experience, the driver needs are very different. So all the instrument cluster where we have the technical details at the moment are not of any further interest to a passenger in an automated car. They don't look to the speedo any longer because they say the car will care for that. They will only look to the sat-nav system, whether the estimated time of arrival will be the right one, and then they're happy. So we have all the rest of the space for so-called infotainment or work experience because the technical details are to be managed by the car. In the interim step, though, we're at the stage where we are still communicating information to the driver. Is there a desperate need to work on that to make it less distracting and more effective. You can provide a huge amount of information, but if he or she takes their eye off the road, then it's counterproductive. Is that an area that you've worked in and do you think we need to work in more? A distraction is a very relevant area as this is the aspect that changes most of all the interaction things. So uh, at the moment, as the driver is fully responsible for whatever the car does, distraction is a very bad thing. And therefore, we care that our systems do the least distraction possible to satisfy the driver and the road safety. At the moment, we move to level three autonomy and the driver gets into the passenger seat, but has to take over in a comfortable time within a couple of seconds distraction will become a good thing because this will keep the driver awake because uh, monitor a system that is very boring and functioning perfectly uh, is not a human-like thing to do mm. and what we will do is we will tend to fall asleep so watching a movie will be a good thing in keeping us awake and this is what the public has to understand and all the legislation has to understand that distraction will become a good thing all of a sudden do you think we will get level five? And if so, within a foreseeable future? Well, level five is, let's say from my perspective, a bit of science fiction. One day we'll get it, but whenever this day is. I think level three and level four systems are quite near and we see that in the next decade. It's also not just virtual reality, but augmented reality, isn't it? That it helps people. It might take control on motorways or others, but it can still be very helpful in other situations without necessarily taking total control. Well, uh, the augmented reality in means of driver assistance systems mm. that are hidden well in the, uh, these are reality. So uh, in our steps in higher levels of, of autonomy, we have safety systems in place that very much help sa saving lives. Do you feel you have job security? Is it a developing area? Is it going to go on for a long time? Uh, definitely. I think I'll be there for a long time. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And we were talking there to Miklas Kish, who is Audi's head of pre-development for automated driving. You're listening to Overdrive. In mid-2016, Jaguar joined the prestige SUV market with the F-Pace. 
a larger urban SUV that competes with the likes of the BMW X5 and the Audi Q5. Rob Fraser spent a week in the R-Sport F-Pace. When you mention Jaguar, the very name evokes a sense of history, of sumptuous ride and sport handling in their famous sports cars and saloons. How could this possibly apply to a large SUV? Well, let me inform you, it does. The F-Pace R-Sport is superb. Like its close cousin, the Range Rover Velar, the F-Pace has subtle styling, luxury interior, along with practicality and that Jaguar-esque ambience. With a choice of engines from the economical but still powerful 2.0-litre diesel through to the soon-to-be-released 5.0-litre SVR, the F-Pace caters to a wide audience. I have to say it's one of the most comfortable cars I've driven, not only the seats and ride, but also the general feeling it gives you. Priced at around $91,000 plus the on-road costs, the Jaguar F-Pace 2.5 DR Sport is definitely worth a drive. You're listening to Overdrive. Now, Brian, does bad governance, the rule by fascism or communism, affect our love for classic cars? There's a report out that now with the demise, well, this I should perhaps note the time this has been broadcast, uh, that uh, it may change, but with the demise of IS in parts of Iraq, a classic car market has come out of hiding. Now, do you think then that this might well become the key measure of stability and uh, openness and democracy? Is it that we might well be able to show our love for classic cars? What do you think? I don't know, David. I think uh, Cuba might be the exception to that. <laughs> they they have a lot of lovely classic cars, and I'm not sure they're all that economically stable. But but certainly, uh, it was it was nice to see that that these things have survived. Islamic State notoriously sort of anti-anything, any fun, <laughs> any religion, any kind of passion and love for things. And uh, they spend their time blowing up wonderful uh, historic buildings and statues and things. And it's uh, lucky that a few of these vintage cars in Iraq have actually survived. Um, of course, Iraq was, uh, Iraq, like Iran, was, um, you know, had a quite a strong American influence for a long time. So there were a bunch of old American cars in there. Uh, 1955 Chevy Coupes and things like that that people are now bringing out of hiding and um, and celebrating a little bit. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of stories of people sort of try to get these cars out of areas that were occupied by Islamic State. It's uh, risking their lives for their for their cars. Ah, well, the, the true dedicated collector. Now, uh, one of those collectors, Aneshwan Shakir Mahmoud, he managed to rescue his vehicle from Mosul after the Iraqi forces drove out Islamic State militants. He drove 13 hours to bring his 1955 Chevrolet Coupe back to the capital. And now, it had sustained minor damage during a mortar attack. Brian, could this... Be a new sort of provenance about oh. the, the car that instead of saying it was owned by someone famous, say it survived ISIS, or yes. you know, and, and here's the dent in the front or, or the bullet hole. Oh, bullet hole would be perfect. Although, of course, you'd have some con people that would then shoot cars make just their own. Yeah. make their own. But uh, yeah, I think so, David. Speaking of provenance, of course, there's uh, one of the vehicles that uh, that's being talked about. Um, uh, which has come from the mayoralty of Baghdad building. They were locked in the garage, a bunch of these vehicles, which uh, one of them was a silver Mercedes from 1936 in Nazi Germany, presented as a gift from Hitler to King Ghazi, the second king in Iraq. 
So that is a providence for you. <laughs> not sure it's desirable, but, oh. but it's, it's it's survived from 1936, and it's uh, I think survived longer than unfortunately some um, magnificent relics and things that have been destroyed well the more that are destroyed the more the value of the other ones go up as long as you don't take them all out there of course trump's policy that may well see is gain some momentum again in uh, with turkey and uh, syria and such uh, might be his intent to get rid of the old cars and make sure they buy new american cars that's right because he wants to control the oil too doesn't he and if you've got these old sort of oil burners yeah now brian you uh have visited iran some years ago and of course there one of the issues was that the petrol was remarkably cheap if i seem to remember was that the case yes yeah petrol's very cheap in iran because they produced lots and lots of it um and yes they they had very cheap petrol and lots and lots of cars and some wonderful old cars they they had the uh the hillman hunter which was uh uh removed lock stock and barrel the entire factory was uh, taken across to iran and they continued to make the kind of 1970s vintage uh, hillman hunters under the paycan which means arrow in farsi the paycan brand so all of the taxis were hillman hunters from the 70s but brand new uh, perhaps i should make a distinction between old and classic yes that's right <laughs> nobody would call these classic well, of course, sadly, not long ago, uh, Andrew Cowan died, who won the London to Sydney in uh, one of those uh, cars, somewhat modified, I believe. Mm. And, of course, Iran probably uh, exceeds Australia in that respect in that they have a car industry. <laughs> All right, Brian. Uh, good to talk to you. Uh, in a, a while, we might talk about uh, something uh, in outer space, but we'll get to that. Always fun, David. Thank you. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to the Overdrive team for their wit and wisdom, especially David Campbell, Brian Smith, Miklos Kish, John Mann and Paul Just. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au and previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. And, of course, there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.